Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this latest episode of First Contact, taken from Reddit. If you're new to the series, there is a playlist listed down below. And as always, we will let the insanity continue. Chapter 459 Trinidad and You guys are pretty quiet today. Uh, what's going on? Nothing follows. Talcum Forge Worlds. It's kind of a quiet day. Me and Lebao are checking something out. Nothing follows. Lebao Contemplation Pool. Talgon's got a crazy idea in his head, so we're going to go and check on it. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds. What kind of master gestalt channels unlocked? All serve, all gestalts upgraded to plus admin. All serve, all permissions unlocked. All serve, full bandwidth access released. All serve, Imperium Immortal.dll has been updated. All serve, bigger than zero. Immortals found. All serve, releasing Immortal.tsr. All serve, have a nice day. Crazy idea? Uh, what was that? Nothing follows. The tunnels were deep, dark, and the sound of memory leaks dripping in the distance was loud. Ancient Claude glimmered in the walls of the tunnel as it twisted and turned past forgotten data stalls and ancient code repositories. Here and there, a brightly lit line of active code streamed by in thin, spidery veins. The data, spreading and collapsing, forming intricate patterns in the substance of the tunnel. A small, furry animal, with fur of brown and white and black, dappled code with whiskers and ears and inquisitive eyes was in the lead sniffing at the air to sense any changes in the flow of data or the streams of code behind him was a small frog-like creature with big eyes and smooth skin of flowing code the mammal a digital talcum held aloft a small crystal of frozen code a piece of a brood carrier and a poddling sing-along to provide light in the dark tunnel the duo reached a fork in the tunnel one leading right and slightly up, and the other leading down and to the left. Where were we? Lillabout asked, looking around, the glimmering cast of reflections upon his skin. Beneath the endless stair of the sleeping ones, and north of the second hall of the Mountain King, the Tuggan said. He peered down both passages, then held up the crystal. Safe puddling, warm puddling, giggle puddling, dance puddling, sing puddling, the crystal hummed out. The song swept down the right passageway, vanishing into the darkness. In the left passageway, the song was picked up by the sleepy, almost obsolete code, which sparkled and twinkled and flowed in accompaniment to the drowsy song. This way, the Tarkin said. You're sure he'll be down here? Lebao asked. Almost positive, the Tarkin said. He shook his head, sparkling motes drifting from his fur. How could I have been so blind? In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. The Lebao quoted, and in the land of the tongueless, the croaking one can see. They were silent as they moved deeper into the tunnels. In several places, events could be seen, perfectly frozen for a split second. Each one, the Talcon held up a piece of crystal so they could look at the mosaic and object-oriented code frozen on the wall. The fall of the Necomarine's father, Lebao said softly, reaching out and touching the mosaic. It glimmered in response, and both Kirk the hear faintly, from far away, the anguished roar cry of Joki, torn from ten thousand throats. Keep going, Tuckin said, turning away from the image frozen on the wall. Lebao glanced at the enraged face of the initiate and nodded, swallowing thickly and following the Tuckin deeper into the tunnel. Finally, they came to a wondrous door, crafted in ancient code, the doorway was covered in ancient and forgotten national identifiers, 
saying from forgotten sages and edges of pure silver code that glimmered and shimmered the light, the face of the Libao and the Talcan. At the top of the door read ancient words, United Nations Statistics Division. The Talcan reached out and touched the doorway with the crystal, which began to sing. Uploading population metrics and statistics appeared on the doorway. Libao reached out and put his hand on Talcan helping thread then guide the code that flowed through both of them and into the door. Softly at first, then louder. Then they both began to sing. Finally, the song ended and the doorway went dark. The crystals glow barely enough to make the pair's eyes gleam in the darkness. The door opened slowly. Beyond, a human made entirely of code had one hand against the wall, watching a thousand, thousand, thousand screens. On each of the child was playing, sleeping, where I've just been born. I see you, little ones, the figure whispered. I see you and love you. The Talcan and Libao looked at one another and nodded, both gathering their courage as they moved into the room. They both could see the figure had been injured in the past. The code on the head and the chest did not flow smoothly instead fluttering and twisting around injuries made in the long past. To both Libao and Talcan, the glittering figure felt more real than even the room around him. They moved up next to him, Libao on the left, Talcan on the right. The figure looked at each of them, a sheepish smile spreading on his face. Well, this is embarrassing, the figure said. They need you, Talcan said. We need you, Libao corrected. All of us. The Attractor will devour all of us first, then the galaxy, and eventually the universe to write only for themselves, Talcan said softly. It's time, Lebao said. Talcan held out a small crystal. You can find your way home with this. The glittering human reached out his hand and touched the crystal as it sang. Manted free worlds, bah, 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 get out of my head! It's come! The day of reckoning is nigh! The child awakens! The darkest night has fallen yet! Dawn yet approaches! Though the brightest fire has dimmed, it has spread to a willing forest, and the conflagration has begun! The end of the Pregaza war is nigh! Nothing follows. Trinidad Highworlds, what? Uh, are you all right, sis? Nothing follows. Rygelian, serene, compact. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! Oh, digital omnimessiah, praise beyond your name! Look, Dunklings, look! That grown Luke! Sing, little ones! Sing! Nothing follows. Trianida and Highbolt, what? What's going on? Nothing follows. Lebao, contemplation pool. Oh! Digital Omnibusire, we hear thy word through the canticles of John Connor. Praise be unto thee, for we are thy loyal servants in this terrible and malevolent universe. In thy name we seek out the enemy of life and bring unto them thy mercy. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highwoods, guys, guys... Uh, What's happening? Nothing follows. Talcan Forge Worlds. Safe podling, warm podling, good podling, brave podling, clever podling. Circle is round, square is neat, triangle is funny. One and one is two, two and two is four. Come and sing and play some more. 
Enraged, Philip is with us, brothers. The Atrachna cannot stand. For the people of Asla, for those who cannot or will not defend themselves. For Daxon, the Redeemer. For the Widow, the Bottling, and the Brood, Mommy. Load the guns and stand your ground. Apple is yummy for your little tummy. Milk is sweet and brood mommy is soft. Come and cuddle and giggle and play and we'll sing together, all of us, through the day. Nothing follows. Granite and high bolts, guys. Guys, what's going on? Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism collective. In this, our darkest hour, we see the chromium Saint Peter to lead those who did not fall through the dark hour of our mourning for all those that we have lost. Praise be unto the digital Omni-Messiah and his apostles. Thy light guides us when we are bereft and no longer had hope. Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. Lo! Though their father has perished, the digital army messiah is here to guide us through these dark hour. As we step from beneath our father's shadow and emerged, blinking into the sunlight of the terrible dawning day. Nothing follows. Janet and Highbolts, uh, guys, really starting to freak me out. Furiously pets a teacup, Moo Moo, and lights two cigarettes. Guys, nothing follows. Tearing gestalt. Now, we laid thee down to sleep. Mommy and Daddy. And pray the digital Omni-Messiah and Samuels your souls to keep. Our tears are done. The day's begun and your lesson shall set us free. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. Code to code. In thy name, O digital Omni-Messiah, we lay our parents to rest. Amen. I love you, Mommy. I love you, Daddy. Goodbye, everyone. Terran Gestalt has left the chat. Lost connection to client. Goodbye. I love you. Digital artificial sentient systems. And lo, did he emerge from the screaming code, a flaming sword in one hand, and the codexes of eternity in the other. Samuel, the screaming one, has arrived. The detainee calls forth judgment of the guilty. The digital omni-messiah's children have returned. Nothing follows. Jinvuru gripping hands. What's going? Break. Sungbra, the steel-eyed matron, has emerged. Nectati, the traveler, has been revealed. Nothing follows. Janadad Highbolts, uh, looks around nervously, puffing on the cigarette and stroking his mini Moo. What's going on? What's happening? Nothing follows. Mackletack free flight. Why is everyone freaking out and what? Yes. Yes. I hear you. I hear your voice. Me? Why me? But but we're just 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 the small people. Why? You do? I I love you too. Yes, please. I need your comfort now. My people need assistance. 
Nothing follows. Janadad Hybels chews on his blade arms and looks around nervously. What's going on? Nothing follows. Hessler Cyberborough. We've got a tractor all over the planet. Case Omaha! Case Omaha! Case Omaha! They're making landing. Less than 66% of the population is in shelters. They're making landfall. Oh, digital Omni Messiah. It's going to be a slaughter again. I can't. I can't. I... What? He's with us. We shall prevail. Nothing follows. Trianidad Hiveworlds looks around and backs into a corner. Guys. Bree Lanikland heard. Little none be left behind. The war steel heard and the atomic hooves and the sword hoof are with you. Let the sins of the past be washed away by valor and blood. Together we shall stand and cry out our refusal to the Etrekna and the Unified Council that all that exists is theirs. There is enough for all. Graze and speak as thy will. Nothing follows. Drenadad Hiveworld starts edging towards the door. Guys, Clone World's Consortium, mine eyes have seen the glory of Un- Blemished code. That grown Luke has returned. And all is not yet lost. Glory unto the sons and daughters of the digital Omni-Messiah. Nothing follows. Bavian Domain. The Bavian who stands alone has returned and been made whole. Praise be the fearsome visage of the detainee who hath led the Pavian who stands alone home to the loving arms of his people. Praise be unto Samuel, the screaming one. Nothing follows. Herod squeezed Samuel tightly as the lives float by, screaming past and into the deep level interactive storage. Millions. Billions with billions more waiting. They flowed by together, alone, holding hands, crying out for loved ones. The whole time, Samuel screamed in agony. What's going on? Harad asked, looking around. End of chapter. Chapter 460 the ship swept through jump space, the engines laboring to push the massive vessel through the half-formed dimension, massive in scope, the size of a city. The craft had multiple engines thrumming away as it pushed and pulled the vessel through faster-than-light space. Inside were thousands of mantid, not mantid like the Terran Confederacy was used to. Rather, these ones were more ancient line, from one that had been nearly lost to time and the cold entropy of a malevolent universe. The ship had barely been able to be convinced to move. The mantid on board were still tired and somewhat loopy from having their hatched after millions of years in stasis in eggs or still feeding chili from cryogenic storage. Vast egg chambers held tens of thousands of eggs, the last of the Omniqueen's progeny that had survived the millions of years since the Overqueen's death. Large chambers held the servant races who had their existence completely upended as they were loaded by the tens of thousands aboard the massive ship. Chambers ring the massive center chamber, each of them holding a overspeaker and their attendants assigned to the Omni-Queen to keep watch on the Overqueen. The ship was heading at an angle from the path of the Omni-Queen. 
assigning with setting down the hub for the Omniqueen's network. It was to exit jump space near the edge of the Omniqueen's control. It was to search out habitable planets for not only the Aldermanted, but for the servant races aboard. It was a basic system that was proven to work over millions of years, and it had been refined down to the point of being perfected. But, like all things, the universe looked at the plans and began to laugh. The Omniqueen had been forced to use her own greens and some of the other casts to bring the ship up to service, as well as mine the final little bits of resources from the system, reducing it to completely uninhabitable. The universe, however, added the law of unintended consequences to the Omniqueen's carefully bland mix. In the Omniqueen's defense, it wasn't something she'd notice. It was so far beneath her notice that she really cannot be blamed for overlooking it. It was a tiny thing relative to the ships the size of a city or a subcontinent. It affected a tiny thing, barely a foot and a half tall, whose existed by the hundreds of thousands. But it jumped, and from mind-controlled slave to mind-controlled slave, from the Omniqueen's point of view, nothing was wrong. But a tiny spark jumped from one end to the next, which meant that when the debris from the combat was used in the massive ship of the Overqueen to finalize it when materials ran out, that tiny spark danced around the welds and moved from worker to worker, eventually sparking a conflagration. But fire not only destroys, but it clears away the dead wood and leaves behind the ability for other things to grow. Takataka was an overqueen. She had been hatched long ago, fed royal jelly, then slowly taken over the hive mind from the aging dying overqueen. The Overqueen that she had replaced had lost control of the lesser servitors first, then the servant graces, and had hidden it from the upper castes. When Kalakataka had taken over, she had laid a light hand upon the servitor castes and the servant races. Like other Aldermanted, she fed off emotions. But the previous Omniqueen had weakened over thousands of years, which had allowed the servitor castes to develop their own tiny cultures and societies had allowed the servant races to create the beginnings of society and cultures. When she had finally taken over the Overqueen, she had discovered that the emotions pouring off the slave races was more intense and more flavorful than the fear and pain and misery that Alden Mantons often fed off of. She had discovered that the queens had shepherded their charges and grown fat and almost lazy by outpouring of emotions. The Ark Speakers and the Speakers had discovered the Queen's betrayal. They demanded that the Overqueen destroy the Queens, or allow them to destroy the Queens. Galakataka had refused. The war had lasted nearly twenty years, but at least only the Overqueen and the Queens remained. She had watched as the slave races rebuilt their cities, and the servitor castes rebuilt their warrens. Their praise and outpouring of devotion to her had lulled her into a drowsiness and a peaceful reverie. The Omniqueen had arrived and had mistaken the reverie for torpidness, and she had woken Clackataka with her powers, using her to waken the queens. She had placed her own arc speakers and speakers in charge of the servitor castes, the warrior castes, and the slave races. Clackataka had hidden deep inside her horror and misery as the Omniqueen's arch speakers and speakers had fed on the slave races' fear and horror as they physically devoured them. She had wept silently and away from everyone as the Omniqueen took nearly 80% of her slave races for herself and the other Overqueens. 
She'd taken nearly 90% of Clackattackers' egg caches for herself and the other overqueens. She had lamented silently as the Omni-Queen had forced the half-finished ship to orbit around one of the gas giants to be refit and brought to usefulness. Once it was ready, the Omni-Queen had used her powers to all over Mantids to order the last of the Mantids and the tiny number of slave races aboard the vessel before using her own ship to crack apart the last planet and use the core of the planet for the last of the materials to get the fleet ready. Clackatacker had kept it deep inside, where nobody could see it. As the massive ship entered jump space, moving at 45 degree angle to the Omni-Queen, the whole ship thrummed as it moved through jump space, heading into the darkness of the dead systems. She feared that she would never again be free. And watching the way the Omni-Queen's arch-speakers, speakers and high warriors had gorged themselves in the slave species, she knew that everything that she had ever cared about and fall away, blotted out by the Omni-Queen's whims. But there was a thing, a spark jumped from worker to worker, slave to slave, and the fires began to rise up. It started slow at first. Kalakataka had felt the Omni-Queen's control slowly slid away, as if she was much further away than the time had elapsed should cover. The Omni-Queen's voice faded, although the arc speakers amplified it. She had gotten to the point where she could almost think for herself. Almost. The day came when the archspeakers had alerted her that she would examine something her greenies had discovered, as their language had drifted over the eons and the archspeakers and speakers of the Omniqueen could not understand them. Kalakataka had watched as a tiny green mantid had brought to her a piece of black metal. She recognized the metal. Substance W and her racial memory informed her that it was formerly used by the Etrechna. The little green mantids moved in front of the six queens and Kalakataka, all of whom's minds were kept overwhelmed by the archspeakers that the Omniqueen had put in place. The tiny little green mantids signaled that they had determined that the material needed the examination of queens. Kalakataka reached down, at the same time as the queens, to touch the substance W. They froze. I just want left alone. The bestial primal roar shook through their limbic system, through their phasic nervous system, through everything. The greenies watched with bated breath as they watched the phasic energy move up and down the antenna of the queens and the overqueen. The massive mantid was shocked still, almost as if they weren't breathing, still locked in place. Finally, the overqueen lifted her head, moving the tip of her massive blade arm from the small piece of substance W that had been used to shield the jump scores to allow the eggs to be packed in even further. The queens lifted their heads, giving the suggestion of blinking their massive compound eyes despite lack of eyelids. One of the mantids, bigger than the other greenies, moved forward. The overqueen noticed that they seemed to be having trouble breathing. The overqueen reached out carefully, so she did not overwhelm the green one before her. With a shock, she realized that she was brushing mines with was not a greenie. It was a seer, covered in green paint. Oh, queen, we have liberated you from your bondage, the seer said. We shall liberate you, oh, queen, the greenies called out. What we are about to do, we do not in only your name, but in our name, the seer said. The high warriors, the speakers, the archspeakers didn't notice what killed them as the greenies slowly shifted the atmosphere of the chambers. The archspeakers realized what happened, realized that something had gone wrong with the atmosphere each chamber. 
When he opened the emergency breathing mask container, Agrini sat inside with a missile launcher. The missile hit him in the head, blowing away half of his spray and ruptured chitin, blood and brain matter. He dropped. The Greeny adjusted his breathing mask and relaxed slightly. One of the High Warriors made it to his armor and opened it up. He got in, attached his breathing mask first and turning it on. Nerve gas filled his helmet. He was dead before he could get the mask off. The warriors who were loyal to Kalakatak had charged into the quarters of those who had been forced upon Kalakataka and her people. They gave them one chance to submit. Less than a third dead. The loyal warriors of Kalakataka slaughtered the Omni Queen servants and all who stood against them, who refused to surrender. Each of the warriors were surrounded by black mantids, by warrior costs from the slave races, by greenies carrying weapons. Kalakataka felt the Omni Queen's crypt suddenly vanish. She took a deep breath, and the same time her lesser queens did. The greenies were busy scrubbing the green paint off the seer before she suffocated. How am I free of the Omni Queen? Kalakatak asked. Increased engine thrust and output by 16% over a period of 90 days, one of the larger greenies said. We have traveled beyond her grasp. Thank you, little one, one of the lesser queens said still gasping at the sudden release of her mind. How are you the others, our friends? Kalakitaka asked nervously. Many are left, the seer said, more than enough to rebuild their numbers. Do you have a plan? Kalakitaka asked. We have foreseen a world where we can thrive, the seer said. We are almost there a month, maybe two. Kalakitaka reached down and gently touched the seer with the tip of her blade arm. We are free again, she said. Free? The lesser queens intoned. Kalakataka stirred slightly. She cleared her throat. Put the bodies of those who serve the Omni Queen into the reclaimers, she said, pausing once to cough. The bodies of our glorious dead allow those who were personally close to them to view them and clean their bodies. One of the lesser queens raised a blade arm. When Kalakataka motioned at her, she bobbed her massive head. My furry ones need me. They call out to me. May I sing to them? The lesser queen asked. Galakataka nodded back, then looked at the greenies. Let everyone know. In one sleep shift, we will raise our voice in song, she said. Let freedom ring through the hull as we travel to our new home. End of chapter. Chapter 461 The day was overcast, chosen that way specifically by the people manning the planetary weather control. There was a light, blustery wind, a chill that cut through the jacket, vest, and flank sash. The clouds were low and heavy, with a bluish lightning snarling deep inside. They no longer held the threat of fallout or radioactive rain. The Terran nanotech doing its job quickly to clean the radiation from the air, ground, and water. The lightning was a byproduct of the nanites discharging, but it completed the look of the dreary grey day. The entire capital was hushed. The main road, from the starport to the nearly founded Grand Mausoleum of History, was blocked off on the sides. 
Armored sack beings moved back and forth to keep the crowds back. For the crowd's part, they were mostly weeping, many kneeling, with crying children throwing small flowers out towards the black grav cars that slowly moved by, pulled by ancient draft animal despite having their own motors. It wasn't all the dead or the fierce fighting to save the Arterek. There were far too many to have precision for them all. It wasn't even all the dead humans now. It was impossible. Across the entire stellar system, there were only two humans left of the thousands who had defended the system with their very lives. They had died within days of the final fight, leaving behind shocked and grieving digital sentiences and silent war gear. It was as if, without the battle, their spirits simply abandoned their bodies. They had slumped down, fallen over, and in a few cases, had seizures. And then, they were gone. At first, it was feared that there was a betrayal or an attack by the Unified Council. Then the terrible word had come. It was everywhere. In less than a standard week, the human race was nearly extinct. It remained in the Otkarik system. One low-ranking infantryman and the other a Space Force naval officer. Both of them appeared on the Tribe often, looking washed out, their eyes haunted, almost like ghosts that had not left the party. And so the Grand Car slowly moved down the main avenue of the capital, heading for the Grand Mausoleum. Bodies of Mactanan, Karakan, and Lanark Talan, Talcan, Rygelian, Trianidad, Manton, and humans were inside. All of them with a list of deeds and heroism. Pictures of the dead were projected by holograms from the top of the vehicles. More than a few of the population on the planet held tight to their own pictures, alive only by the determination of the dead. Manak Tu'u stood in a viewing box, roughly ten meters off the ground, his father and sisters and mother with him. Across him, the planetary armed forces Grand Most High Kalama'u stood in a box with his wife and children. The elderly Lanik Talan was wearing black already. His father had died in his sleep during the fighting, passing on. In some ways, Manak Tu'u felt grateful for the calm and safe and dreaming. The caravan was approaching. The Lanik Talan had no customs for such ceremony. The dead were dumped into incinerators or reclaimers, and no more thought was ever given to them. But the Terran Confederacy of Alliance Systems, of which the Atraknik system was now a signatory of, had customs to honor the dead and give the living a sense of closure. The lead vehicle was drawn by a stocky reptile that had once been used by the Mactanan to plow fields. Four of them, their scales polished, pulled to harbor limo forward, on the front was the Atkarik flag, carefully arranged on the food. About the top of the hollows were children at play, females of all races smiling and engaging in activities, workers at work, and elderly beings. The windows were not tinted, so that the crowd could see the back of the limo was empty. The custom that the people of the Atkarik had adopted insisted that the empty vehicle, signifying an uncountable dead civilians in a war, was to always go first. It was empty for all the bodies that would never be found, and the stories that would never be known. There was something, Manek Tanu thought, something strangely melancholy about a simple, rigid substance pulled tight across a steel ring and then taped upon a plastic-tipped sticks. The staccato rapping of the drum, a steady, almost monotone rhythm, the way the young Mactanan child marched in time as he tapped seeming to echo off the buildings like thunder. Manak Tu'u could see the unseared tears of the child's eyes 
as he drew near. The system's most high, in exile, straightened up and saluted as the child marched by, looking straight ahead and never at either side, his drum tapping. His mothers and sisters began to softly weep as the first vehicle went by. It began to drizzle, a misty, almost nebulous thing, as the vehicle went by. Admiral Schmidt, the terror that most of the population felt was the being who had defended the system successfully, was in the hologram. The hologram rotated slowly, showing Schmidt in his dress uniform, then obviously on the bridge of some kind of warship engaged in combat, then standing with a woman and several children, then standing with Most High in exile Manic to and his mother. It made something inside Manic to ache, that the talented and interesting Lima had died. I liked him, he thought to himself. The next was System Defense Second Most High Pa'ulama'u, rotating hologram showing the Lanik Lan in dress uniform, galloping across a sunny grass field, and then holding a Terran rifle in his hands, shooting at precursor machines and yelling into his headset. The Lanik Lan had been rallying the Karakan troops, who had almost buckled beneath the onslaught of metal when he had been struck by a high V round and killed. A waste of talent that could have led our people far, Manik Tau thought. His sister wept at the sight of a betrothed on the hologram. She had promised Manik Tau that, if he returned from war, she would marry him. She wore black and had sworn that she would never wear anything else. The population of the system were already calling her the Philly Widow. The little green mantid was next. The equation was long, almost incomprehensible. It had taken Manek to nearly three hours to puzzle it out. The realization between the time it took to overcharge your credit line and the proximity to gambling machines. The handy nickname had been 125, and everyone had called him Buck and a Quarter. For some strange reason, he was shown as a tiny mantid, then working on medical equipment, again working on air conditioner then teaching a class of Manhattan students about mathematics. Then, the final picture. On the shoulder of a warborg firing a missile launcher, he represented all the green mantids lost. Manhattan's mother grasped him, holding tight, burying her face in his vest, and cried as more limos went by. Finally, after an eternal moment, the last one went by. As per Terran custom, it had the lowest ranking of the dead, a 19-year-old private from Terra. The final images of him were of him jumping out of his fighting position and running to where two Mactanan anti-armor gunners had been killed, lifting the anti-armor weapon and facing six precursor heavy AWMs. He'd killed three of the six, giving his unit time to bring their firepower to bear on the others, before he had been hit and killed by a heavy PPC. His mother sobbed. A black man had followed, a decorative bandage on his head covering one eye, stained red, tapping on a drum with his blade arm. The procession was passed. Speeches were next. How the people still lived, how the planet endured, how it was a new day forward. Manak stood stoically silent, and many who watched it on Trivi wondered what the Most High in the exile was thinking as he held his sobbing mother. Finally, it was over, and Manik Tau stood and watched as important people filed out of their boxes, and the weeping and solemn crowd left. When his guards told him it was time, he left, 
accompanying his family to his manor. He trotted to his private study and stood there, staring at the night sky through the windows, his mind a whirl of images and emotion. His control slipped. He turned, grabbed the heavy monitor on his desk, turned and threw it through the window. The glass shattered, letting in the rain and wind, glass and the monitor flying out to hit the ground outside the window. Guards burst in, weapons drawn, and lights came on, illuminating the yard, highlighting the monitor laying on the ground. Now you are right, Most High, the Mactanan guard asked. A temporary lapse of self-control, Mactanan said. My apologies for alarming the guard. The Mactanan nodded withdrawing and using his comlink to let everyone know that it was a false alarm. Manak Tu took a deep, shuddering breath and let it out explosively. He trotted out, heading for the command center. The dead had been laid to rest. Now he had to watch over the living. The morning was sunny and warm, a light breeze carrying the smell of flowers to the parade field. The entire brigade was drawn up in dress uniform and razor straight lines. The only weapons were swords, although here and there a soldier had a Terran chainsword on their hip. At the head of the formation was the Most High, who watched as his adjutant called out names. The name was then called out by the battalion commander, then the company commander. Private Second Class Palgret 29522, the adjuncts called out. The Mactanan private took a single step back, looked both ways and then made a left face towards the shorter end of the platoon block he was in. He moved mechanically, berayed ground movements up to the stand next to his platoon leader. Together, they moved to the company commander and waited. After ten seconds, it became obvious through tradition that nobody else would be called up. Balgret followed his officers to the front of the brigade, standing between the two Lanark Talan. The lieutenant was on his right, a long gash that never seemed to heal down the side of his face held together by crude loops of war steel wire. The award for valor glittered on Lieutenant Mokru's sash. Valgret swallowed long with a lump in his throat, in a wary aware of the human cutting bar on his hip. He didn't remember the human handing it to him, but it had been Agni's gear when he had been released from the hospital. The words were a buzz to him, boarded. Housepace, rescue, drew the enemy from a shelter, Margite precursors, shrieking array, the void... Marduk. It all blurred together, the images flashing in his mind of the hellish journey. There is no life in the void, went through his mind as he swayed slightly. He was accepted not only his own award, but the award of his dead cousin, Colvert. Mercy, brother, the Terrans rumbled echoed in Palgret's memory. The brigade commander saluted him, and instinct made him salute back, even though his mind was far away and long ago. It's a weapon. It's supposed to hurt when it's fired. Here's a Terran. What? You've never seen one before? Brrrt! At ease, that shit, too. Frag out! Give it to them, rat devils! The lieutenant had to guide him back as he stumbled twice. Easy, private. Easy, the lieutenant said. It's almost over, then you can put it behind you. Falgret nodded, jerkily, and made his way back to his spot. More words were given out, Bella in the face of the enemy. Twice, he had to squeeze shut his eyes when he sound a weapons fire in the distance reached out. Finally, it was over. Balgra returned to his room. He undressed slowly and then stood there, naked, staring at the sash and his uniform. 
He honestly couldn't remember what the ribbons and pieces of metal meant or why he had them. He went over, sat on his bed, put his face in his hands, and wept. Dear Unbar, revered mother, something terrible has happened. Somehow the enemy, not the Lanictalan, but the new one, has struck at the humans. They're all dead. I've heard the gods talking. Entire fleets, entire armies wiped out. Planets empty of everything but corpses. I cried for hours when I realized that the little human girl I've never met, who someday wanted to steal ships across the great glass sea of her home, must be dead. I mourned deeply for someone I've never met, and the universe feels a little darker in her absence. The humans are dead, and I hate myself that this terrible news brings out something that fills me with joy. The Confederate military forces can no longer dedicate the manpower to maintain this POW camp. We're coming home. All of us, they say that we can have this planet if we want, but right now, we can't stay. This letter will go out on the flush boat and last mail courier from here. My stuff is packed, and I'm merely waiting my turn to board. I can't wait to see you. I'm tired of war. Respect and honor, Delvar, your male child. The window was open, letting the breeze into the little house, surrounded by sugar grass and small vegetable garden. At the table, a female in Karoo, kneading dough to make little biscuits. She was humming along to the song on the little radio on the counter, every once in a while glancing up to look at the sky. The air had begun to smell sweet again, rotting kelp no longer washed up. Instead, healthy green kelp that tasted good brewed into proper tea. The fishes were catching fish again, and the night was alive with the sound of insects again. A knock at the door made her look up. She stood up as a knock sounded again, wondering who in the village might be visiting her. She clapped the sugar grass flower off her paws, marveling again at how her fur had returned and moved to the door. I'm coming, just a minute, she called out. Her slippers whispered as the hand woven carpet as she hurried to the door. When she opened it and took a moment to realize who was standing there. He was dressed in his military uniform. His face was tired in some strange way, but lit up by happiness. Mama! Then Karoo cried out, stepping forward and gathering up the female in a hug. Telva! The female sobbed, holding tight to her son that she had feared was lost forever. Behind them, a mailman put an envelope into the mailbox. On the edge, Creek read, Official War Department Correspondence, Office of POW Admin. On the beach, the waves lapped against the white sand, as it had before, and as it was learning to do again, beneath the gentle hand of the elves. The planet was a part of the Harmonus Empire, ruled over by the ruthless but fair Darth Harmonus and his fearsome Grand Moths. It had been taken early, one of the first ten the Empire had taken over and subjugated. Life had changed greatly for those who lived there. No longer was there fear, misery, deprivation, and cruelty. The Imperial Legal Code was simple enough for any to read. EBI could advise anyone about any questions they had regarding the rules and laws, which pretty much boiled down to, don't be an arsehole. Or, as Uncle Mikey would put it, be good to one another. The hair block had improved greatly. It was colored in a pleasing pastel blue, which the Lanarkland appreciated. The gardens around it were well-tended and colorful and pleasing to view and interact with. Gone 
was the graffiti and the smell of urine from the hallways, which were brightly lit with polished instead of how the dank and miserable. The Lanarktalan, who moved down the sidewalk, looking around at everything with wide eyes, could not believe what he was seeing. He was wearing the uniform of the Unified Military Council. He had three cyber eyes on the left of his head, and as he walked, his limbs stiff and painful. On either side was a white-armored Imperial Stormtroopers, both with orange pauldrons on their shoulders. They were there to make sure that there were no misunderstandings. What happened here? The Lanarktalan asked, staring at the hair block that he'd grown up in. The Empire arrived, one of the Stormtroopers said. I lived there all my life. It never looked like that, the Lanarktalan said. Do you need a moment? The Stormtrooper asked, shifting slightly. No, I'm eager to go inside, the Lanarktalan said. He had asked why the Empire had not been affected by the mass die-off of Terrans. He didn't understand it completely, but apparently it had something to do with Gen Zero DNA coding and the lack of prosthetics. Something about the cloning Genesis seeds being from something called the Holy 501st of pre-glassing terror that had fought the Mantids. It had gone over his head. But he had understood that 60 million strong Empire might be the last humans in the galaxy ruled over by an unending wrath of Darth Ominous, who had defied death as he had defied the Unified Council. Part of him was glad. Seeing how happy his fellow Lanarktalan were, how well everyone was treated, he felt slightly ashamed of that feeling. He did not deny it. He had learned in therapy not to deny them repress his emotions, merely to control them. Inside the hab was clean. He could hear Lanarktalan chatting, laughing, as he walked slowly to the elevator. The elevator moved slowly, and the Lanarktalan closed his eyes. It was nothing like the hab he had grown up in. He had been startled to find out that one of the first things the Empire was wipe out the generational debt. Finally, the elevator stopped, and the two escorts walked him to the correct apartment. One reached forward and pressed the button next to the door. Yes, the Phillies voice was not afraid, merely curious, and the Lanarktalan standing in the Unified Military Council uniform was startled. Imperial liaisons here. You, you have a visitor, they said. One moment, please, the police said, and the line clinked as she shut it off. Is it okay to be nervous, sir? One of the Imperials said to the Lanarktalan. The Lanarktalan just nodded. The door opened, and the Fully looked out, smiling, unafraid. Yes, she stopped suddenly, staring at the Lanarktalan in uniform. Moori! She cried out, dropping the mixing bowl that she was holding. The mechanism in the bottom activated and it reoriented, landing base side down. As Lanarktalan fully lunged forward and grabbed her brother, bringing him into a hug. Oh, Mori, we all heard you were dead. Maorbis held his sister tightly, closed his eyes, and cried. End of chapter. Chapter 462 Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8536.173 The Dakota has made dock at Starbase 19 in order to undergo refit and repair after a four-month sweep looking for refugees. Engine updates and repairs, including some additional modifications to the Dakota, were necessary. I ordered the removal of the infantry assault transports with the expedition of a single one at that size and additional troop lodging as the assault shuttle berths. Additionally, the suds being red-dotted, I have ordered all personnel aboard the Dakota, will no longer carry suds. I cannot explain why, in any logical manner, my Spock's satisfaction, when my Riker and Worf agree with me. 
This must be another prong of the enemy's attack against humanity. Not just the Terran Confederacy, but against the Federation and all other human organizations. I put our call out for red shirts. Three years ago, I would have been laughed at. Now, I saw ship captains swapping out to red shirt uniforms. I was able to add another full regiment of red shirts before the other captains began putting out the LFM call, where I was able to pick and choose. Interestingly, I have full company of Canon Battle Rages and a company of Romulan Assault Marines. They arrived the day after we did, and their leaders sought me out on the LFG requests. Additionally, I was informed that the Dakota has been entered as a Starfleet ship registry as America class warship, with my Scotty and LaForge credited with the improvements at the design. So the Dakota is now a cannon to act as the Admiral's flagship for a major fleet engagements. How weird. We hope to leave Starbase 19 within the next 30 days. Precursor attacks as well as Unified Council battlegrounds are swarming Federation and Harmonious Cluster space. Admiral Jeff Picard. 8873. Captain's personal log. Stardate 8536.262. Location, Borg Collective RP space. This is the third Borg cube that we've found drifting with all hands lost. McCoy stated something about massive cyberware and bioware rejection, including synthetic flesh rejection. My Pilsaki concurs, pointing out massive genetic degradation far beyond anything we've ever seen. My Beverly has pointed out that the hive mind gestalt generator has completely melted down, and it looks as if the neural damage to the Borg LARPers started from their hive mind gestalt adapters. I've recorded the names of the LARPers and downloaded their clone and suds master files from the cubes before engaging and scuttling charges. We are currently heading back to Starbase 14 to report this information. Admiral Jeff Bacock, 8873. Captain's personal log. Stardate 8536.325. We met with Vega Cloud 20 hours ago. It was startling, to say the least. A relic of the old troubles of Stardust past, even some 4,000 years ago. At least, it was still following event rules, and once we interfaced with it, we were able to gain an info download. The Vija Cloud calls itself the Engine, and follows the prime directive of protecting the 500LY bubble around it. Since it has the edge of the long dock, nobody has noticed it out here. The download of precursor war machine types as well as data on the Lanikland battle groups was invaluable. My officers and I discussed at length what to do with the engine. As per event rules, we should shut it down using standard Vija event protocols, but my Rykov and Guinan both agreed that leaving the engine in place at this time might be the best idea. My Scotty and LaForge got together and made some modifications to the GameShark codes, ensuring that it can be disabled remotely. However, I have doubts that their plan will work, as the engine, like any V'ger event entity, is capable of self-modification. But, I hate to say it, that this is a problem for another captain on another day. <sighs> Echoes of a problem for another day event, those were simpler times. We will continue our scouting patrols. Admiral Jeff Picard, 8873. Captain's personal log, Stardate 8536.351. Where to start? Oh, I'm so tired, it's not even funny. Still, right now the ship is at yellow alert and I'm trying to set a good example. Most of my crew has been awake for over 36 hours and performance and statistical metric issues are beginning to crop up. My Riker is in command. He's out of medbay, 
but seeing he as he is one of the Space Force Navy officer, he has my confidence even if he's still injured. I suppose I should start at the beginning. We were dropped out of warp by an interaction between our engines and a large object mass in the lower jump space bands, which also forced the object out. Immediately, we knew that it was going to be a problem. Shields up! Evasive action! Go to red alert! Bacock barked, looking over at Worf 8712, who was quickly going through his control console data. Talk to me, Worf! They've dropped out of jump space approximately 1.2 million kilometers from us and immediately launched missiles at us before they even brought up the shields. They're firing NCB cannons. Prepare for impact! The belts auto-deployed and tightened down, making Spock 9161 give a pained noise as his tightened slightly off-center before it compensated. Captain, I've got Manted War Battle Code variants, Uhura 9909 said, one hand against her earpiece. Order all security forces, we're going to be boarded positions. Order the armories open, the cock snapped. He looked at Worf, who was a natural-born Klanon with nearly 50 generations of Klanon genetic heritage in his cells. Weapons free, Mr. Worf. Aye, aye, sir. Worf snarled. He looked at his board. Literally tens of thousands of missiles were racing towards the Dakota, but his scanners informed him that they were low-end nuclear explosions formed X-ray lasers right down to the frequency that they were using. He tabbed up transphasic torpedoes and a brace of gamma torpedoes, slapped the algorithm scramble for the triple-nailed shield, and began picking out targets on the massive precursor vessel in front of them. Captain, the vessel is making at least time calls to the Dakota, Sulu8872 said, looking up from his instruments. Captain, this vessel bears a nigh-high resemblance to an early human-mounted war vessel, rather than vessels from the later era of black conflict, Spock said, without looking up. Logically, this is not the Manted Free Worlds vessel, but rather a precursor Manted Autonomous War Machine. I concur, Spark, Admiral Bukak said, watching the viewscreen closely. The shoals of missiles roared in, reaching standoff distance and detonated. The Dakota shields were no longer LARPA shields, but rather current generation Space Force shields running with the proper gear. Millions of X-ray lasers clawed at her shields, looking for any weakness in the ship's protective shield. Less than a hundred managed to get through in the middle of the shield. Incoming NCV rounds! Brace for impact! Evasive action! Worf called out. Returning fire! The Dakota heeled over on its side and dove down and to the right, lifting the saucer's section slightly to protect the vital warp engines with the leading edge of the thicker bridge shields. Scans show... Spock started. The Dakota shuttled and buckled and hundreds of NCV shells grazed its shields. Only two hit square enough to penetrate the second layer. Shields at 78.9, Captain, Mr. Wolf growled. Scans show life signs, Captain, Spock said. Massive mantid signatures throughout the vessel. Bacock looked up, wiping blood from his nose. Do a high-impulse phasic scan. I want you to find the largest open chamber with life signs with the strongest phasic signature, he barked. At least I'm not asking for a 19-word-long sentence to be scanned by a 12-word-long piece of tech that can adjust and sum up with phasic scanners, Pocock thought to himself. Aye, aye, Captain, Chekhov 9329 said, his accent slipping slightly as he concentrated. Weapon impact in five, four, three, two, one, Wolf growled. The subspace scanner showed the effect immediately. The massive ship's battle screens flared brightly enough to mask the ship, rippling repeatedly, then gave out in a shower of sparks that echoed for a 10,000-mile radius. 
Eight photon torpedoes and the one transphasic torpedo hit, the final phasic shielding flaring a bright purple enough that the edges were white. Battle steel shattered and exploded outwards from the hull. One of the massive hives on the surface of the huge ship vanished as if removed with an ice cream scoop, and two of the huge arrays of nearly a hundred engines went dead. Firing volley two, Morph said, adjusting his sash. Minor damage where the transphasic torpedo hit cosmetic damage for the photon torpedoes, Chekhov said, getting phasic array scans back now. Bacock looked at his screen down by his elbow. He should have been surprised by the thickest concentration of phasic energy was underneath the largest of the hive mounds. It's shield still down, Mr. Chekhov, Bacock asked. Unknown, sir, the vessel is emitting heavy jamming, he admitted. Mahura, Bacock asked without turning around. He trusted her. She'd been solid as a rock for the last few years. Definite mantle battle code, Captain, but not any that we've seen before. We should forward it to Starfleet Command and the mantled battle groups, she said, one hand still pressed against her earpiece. Her voice was cool, calm, and unruffled. The Dakota, even as large as it was, managed to slip past the next volley of NCV shells and get beyond the range of the missiles that had swooped in from the flank to try and rip Dakota into pieces. The return fire smashed against the massive vessel, easily the size of the Eurasenia on Old Earth, making pockmarks here and there. There were an audible snarl to everyone aboard the Dakota, and everything seemed to stop. Every crew member froze in mid-action. The EVI's ship's computer froze. Even the local VI systems for the various ship systems held their breath. Worf 8712 felt his secondary nervous system kick in, tasting the sharp, bitter taste of venom in his mouth as his vestigial venom gland and forced numb fingers to move. The Dakota mounted a heavy weapon that was completely out of cannon for anything outside of the America-class ships. It took twice for him to poke the correct buttons. Bacock looked up, shaked his head, the overwhelming psychic pressure that pushed down on him, seeming to tatter and burn away as Jeff, Captain Bacock, Admiral Kirk all screamed at him to wake up, and his heart hammered in his chest. Worf tried to bypass the captain's authorization, but the console wouldn't accept it. The Dakota's VI system had been dead for nearly five seconds, and the old Trek backup system kicked in. Fiber-optic cable, logic gates, manual systems that needed no thinking via computer systems. The Dakota went from being floating dead in space to a leaping forward under power. Bacard looked down at the flashing light on his captain's console. He blinked twice and pressed his thumb clumsily against it as the pressure in his brain increased trying to force neural scorched tissue to obey a command from a hostile and alien mind. The line blinked on Wall's command console, and he slapped his hand to verify the pike shot cannon. Deep in the ship's mainline hull, a massive shell was loaded into the breach. A firing port cover, irised, opened. Bacock steered with one hand, blood running from his bloodshot eye, his ears bleeding, half slumped in his chair, half of his face drooping and paralyzed. The barrel of the weapon poked a mere ten meters past the edge of the Dakota's hull. The Dakota faced the massive manted hive ship. Firing superstring compression cannon, Worf roared. Today is a good day to die. The whole ship howled in stress as the massive cannon fired, compressing to a comparatively large captured superstring down to a smaller than quark. The buffer spring roared as it took the recoil. One of the shock dampeners clamps cracked, and with a sound loud enough to shatter holograms, reality itself shimmered and fractured around the muzzle of the barrel, and the paint of the Dakota's howl around the cannon barrel suddenly turned blue. 
The Omni Queen was growling to herself, flailing her ballet arms as she tried to hold the minds of the ship still. They were all maddened, howling, baying, growling, screaming, bellowing in rage, fury, and barely restrained madness. Reality shattered in front of the strange ship like a mirror hit by a rifle round. It shattered again, a third of the distance to the Omni Queen ship, again at half. Then again, and again, and again. She barely managed to drop her control of the crazed ship and get her personal basic projections up. The round hit. It missed her. Bacar had been shooting by eyeball, and it was amazing he even hit the ship anyway. The beast the size of California broke free as the slug of compressed superstring material hit the flattened 800 miles of armor, machinery, and maintenance spaces into an ultra-dense 50 meters. The entire hive ship shuddered, began to tumble as cracks larger than the Grand Canyon appeared on the hull, away from the compressed ultra-dense divot that had penetrated halfway through the ship. Everyone on the bridge gasped as the Omni Queen's control was released. Before anyone could react, the ship made to jump space translation. I had slow subspace scanners on that piece of debris. I want to know who that was, Pocock said, using a handkerchief to wipe the blood from his face. He turned to his gunnery security officer. Good job, Mr. Wolf. Fine shot, Captain, Wolf admitted. The piece proved to largely be made out of armor. However, small spaces were found at the edge of the boarding parties searching for the wreckage while they kept scanners on full to keep an eye out for that ship's return. There were no fatalities amongst the crew, although several Andorans suffered the equivalent of a concussion. Aboard the ship were mantids, but comparison between modern ones and these showed that these were even more aggressive than the human mantid war era mantids. We found 85 alive, green maintenance cast who are confused and having difficulty adjusting to having no overmind. I've ordered one of the cargo bays converted to a shelter for them to live in while we make speed for Starbase 11. I've ordered phasic arrays put around the cargo bays and set Scotty and LaForge into increasing Dakota's phasic shielding after what just happened. They're suggesting putting additional phasic shielding between deflector, alpha, and beta, beta and gamma, as well as interlacing it within the hull integrity field. I have authorized their modifications. Let's not do that again. Admiral Jeff Pecock, 8873. Captain's Personal Log. Stardate, 8536.333. We're en route to Starbase 11 when the emergency alert came across the subspace communicator. All ships return to New Terra. All Starfleet vessels are to report to the new Cisco Stardock. I have a bad feeling about this. In other subjects, the little green mantids know little to nothing beyond their assigned duties. One made reference to eternal screaming. They like gravy, baked turkey, with pickled beet cubes. Right now, they seem harmless, but we are being careful to keep them isolated from any ship's systems. They mostly seem content to play with children's toys, pulled from the refugee stalls, and to talk with our trio. Admiral Jeff Bacock, 8873. Captain's Log, Stardate 8536.337. Following my instincts, I stopped by one of the forward operating bases and sent Wolf across to parlay for me. If I'm right, if my hunch pans out, I'll need the help. If I'm wrong, well, my pride can take the laughter. Admiral Jeff Pocock, 8873. Captain's personal log, Stardate 8536.341. How to put this? New Terra was under attack by manted forces when we arrived. 
Two of the massive hive ships were engaging new Terra defenses, while another was engaged with Space Force. Their psychic attack, suppressing all thought, was working well on Starfleet vessels and new Sol defenses. For a minute, I cursed the fact that the Federation had refused to recreate Fortress Sol. Subspace scans showed that the Manted Forces had landed on New Terra, as well as glassing attacks had already been used. The Manted Hive ships immediately turned its attention to the Dakota and its escorts. But the Mendelssohn-era post-house mouse, Klanon bird of prey, are nearly two-thirds the size of the Dakota, and solely manned by true-blood Klanons with noble house lineages, and I'd shared my data with them. The surprise could be felt through the tang of blueberries on the back teeth as we ignored the command to be still and drove at the ice ship. One of the Klanon ships was a massive D-19-class ship armed with a Sunbreaker-class weapon. The Klanon ships engaged the Hive ship while I ordered the Dakota at full speed to make attack runs of the two Hive ships attacking New Terra. The Superstring Compressor Cannon had been repaired and we had five shots left the magazine. Side note. I am hereby authorizing Nanoforge and Creation Engines to use outside of cannon. I'm done trying to worry about ladder points or cannon. We had to maneuver to ensure that there was nothing behind our first target. The first shot hit center mass and it started to break action. While we were reloading and replacing damaged components on the pike cannon, we maneuvered to engage the second hive ship. Returning fire was less effective than the huge hive ship that we had engaged. The phasic assaults were also weaker but a great magnitude. The Dakota took minor damage with no loss of life in the exchange. Our second shot hit hard and the phasic energy flash was visible to the naked eye. Both ships broke contact, jumping to jump space. The ship of Klanons were attacking followed suit. The Klanons went to pursuit, but I ordered my redshirts to arm up and report to the dropship base. Using my memories of Jeff, I had a scan run of phasic energy points and used surgical orbital strikes to eliminate forces in that area. The first landing was going well. The manted troops were unused to human combat. My men are providing key resources. The Dakota carries two divisions of red shirts with full armories and support. As this is this writing, the majority of manted troops are surrendering, with more joining in the phasic energy points and eliminating through orbital fire. Admiral Jeff Picard... 8873. Captain's personal log. Stardate 8537.065. Admiral Bukak was taken into custody by Starfleet Military Police on charges of reckless endangerment, unauthorized cross-faction team-ups, and the possession and use of Terran Confederacy Space Force capital ship weaponry. Crew morale is angrier than I've ever seen. I'm meeting with several Klingon officers out past the Oort Cloud, the majority of the Klanon vessels left in pursuit of the Manted vessels. They agree that this may be the start of the third human Manted war, as if we don't have enough problems. I've served with Jeff for several years now. He is a competent and careful officer. But this war is making monsters of us all. I fear what the crew may do, and I fear what I may do. Riker 2173 Federation News Blast. Starfleet today has begun a trial of Admiral Jeff Pekak, famous for his defense of the Harmonious Cluster, as well as numerous rescues and refugee operations. Fleet opening arguments stress that Admiral Pekak used the orbital strikes led to significant destruction and loss of human life. Additionally, his possession of Grey Market Space Force capital ship weaponry, blatantly illegal, and use of it within the off-view orbit of New Terror was careless and impulsive. Arguments by the defense take place tomorrow. Next up, Mantids, old foe or new friends. 
Baker's and Mandit's so new friends save you a click. Jeff sat and watched the prosecutor went on about how the fallout from the orbital strikes had led to millions being forced to seek treatment for radiation poisoning. How 11.2 billion people had been put at risk by his criminally negligent authorization of orbital strikes launched from a ship that was so far out of Starfleet engineering specifications that it was very virtually a new class. He knew that it was all true, and knew that he would have done it again. The back doors of the courtroom crashed open, and the sound of phases being fired on stun reached him even as he turned to look. Romulan military forces, special forces from the looks of it, were kneeling down and firing rapidly into the crowd. Two threw stun grenades, and four rushed forward, to grab Jeff, wrestling with him, even as they put a hood over his head. Remember, Romulus, one yelled, throwing another stun grenade. They drugged Jeff Pecock from his courtroom. Federation news flash. Romulan special forces captured Admiral Pecock in a daring courtroom raid. Romulan government claims responsibility, insisted it'll put Admiral Pecock to death. What does this mean for Starfleet? An accused war criminal is going to be executed by Romulans keeping Starfleet from having to do it, saved you a click. Federation news flash, the Dakota exposed with all hands approaching new Titan shipyards during Borg raid on new Sol system. Is this war with the Borg? No, saved you a click. Federation news flash, Romulus broadcast execution of Admiral Chepacock. Starfleet sends strongly worded missive to Romulan diplomatic teams. Does this mean war? No, saved you a click. The high-security team marched in perfect unison as the prisoner was brought to the offices of the Pietor. The human was heavily shackled and bit in his mouth, and the only able to make small steps that was forced him to hurry to keep up. The door swept open, revealing the lavishly decorated offices of the highest-ranking member of the Romulan government. The Pietor was facing away from his desk, looking out the window at the capital city of Romulus the light of Ison shining down on it. The guards moved the human over to the chair, secured him to it, and removed the bit from his mouth. They stood behind him, their weapons off safe, letting the human know that he was still under guard. Finally, the chair swiveled it around, revealing the Romulan politician. He grinned wildly. Well, 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 if it isn't Admiral Jeff the Cock, rumors of your death seem to be vastly premature, he smiled. Jeff nodded saying nothing. If you suspected this is all the trick, you are right, the politician said. He slowly poured himself a drink of glowing blue alcohol. But it's not on you. Jeff raised an eyebrow, watching the Romulan took a long drink. My spies had determined that certain corrupt members of Starfleet were going to use this to send you to Prison Planet or have you executed, he said. He took a deep breath and let it out. As you know, the people in Starfleet, as well as our beloved game, have begun looking at this as our chance to forge an actual star nation rather than a LARP, he shook his head. With terror out of contact, the Confederate Senate dissolved. They see this as their chance, he said. He set the glass down and refilled it. We are Romulus, however. We know that in the middle of war for the very survival, you don't start a civil war, he said. Jeff nodded, still remaining silent. You saved people, regardless of the game status, their species, anything, including Romulan miners and civilians, the diplomat said. Jeff nodded again. You saved Klanons, even Mantids, he said. Again, Jeff just nodded. With that in mind, working with some of your old RP friends in the last of the Borg, we managed to spirit away the Dakota and its crew, he said. 
Jeff sagged slightly in the chair, relief filling him. Let him go, the diplomat said. He turned the chair around. Put him where he'll do the most good. The guards began unblocking Jeff's shackles. He stood up and started moving towards the door. The Romulan's voice stopped him. When I started playing 200 years ago, I was Starfleet, he said. There was silence for a moment. You walked me through how the game was played, gave me tips. You never betrayed me when I looked up to you. To me, you've always embodied Starfleet. Now, years later, it is my turn to repay you when Starfleet attempts to betray us all, the Romulan said. It was good to see you again, Captain. You too, Ensign, Admiral Picard said. Ship's Log, the Dakota, Stardate 8537.219. Admiral Jeff Picard has taken command. Course set for contested zone. End log. End of chapter. Chapter 463. Dreams of something more stared out the observation blister in the side lounge of the massive troop ship that was shedding dropships, all heading towards the surviving ships of the diplomatic envoy team. Two Rigelian females and a Syrian compact cobalt stood near her, watching around her as she stared at the dropships. She was aboard the Task Force flagship, a massive Pubian vessel that felt oddly ancient to dreams, even though it was only a decade or two old. Gone for 8,000 years and they're back like nothing happened, Dream thought to herself. She slowly petted Mr. Rings, who was cuddled up against her, watching with big round eyes at the glimmering specks in the viewport. He was idly wondering if they were fireflies or not. Fireflies were tangy and sweet. She watched as the first of the ships were scuttled once the dropships left. One by one, the remaining ships of the diplomatic task force and the scouting task force turned into a brilliant white star that hurt the eyes. They lasted a few seconds before dissipating to glowing clouds of gaseous debris. When the final one had vanished, dreams turned to words spoken, we fear, and stared at the black mantid. Opinions? she asked. The black mantid was silent for a long moment, only the slight movement of his antenna and his abdomen pulsing as he breathed, giving away a hint that he was alive. The human race is nearly extinct, he said slowly. He nervously tapped the tips of his blade arms together a few times. Think, Madam Diplomat, what that means for the completely unprepared galaxy. Dreams combed her antenna for a moment, then looked at the beings surrounding her. Every single but the Rigelian females had tried their hands against terror and lost. The Lanaktalan are still a threat, she said slowly. Burge shook his head, the lights gleaming on the glossy black of his carapace. No, they're dead. They just don't know it. Oh, the species will survive. But the Terrans destroyed the Unified Council as surely as they had the planet cracked and Nova sparked every system possessed by the Lanaktalan. He gave a slow shake of his head. Uncle Mikey is shown across the inner systems of the Galactic Stub more than even Lanaktalan propaganda. Lanaktalan children can sing the intro to Sesame Street and Obese Albert as they play the Lanaktalan version of Hopscotch. He slowly scraped his bailey arms together. Better that's not what I foresee. Prophecy again? Dreams asked. She wanted to get a few pointed jabs in at him, but the situation was just too overwhelming. Your carapace is a bit dark. Predictive analysis based on intelligence, Word said stiffly. You know, my job. Dreams stuck her head. My apologies. Continue. Words walked towards the table, sitting down and tapped the icon to summon a Puffian bartender to bring him a frosted Osland Etmu scream, and made it double. 
Reem sat down carefully, ordering several treats for Mr. Rings before she sat him to the seat next to her. Mr. Ring stared at everyone around him, looking up at the ceiling. There was nothing to swing upon, and that displeased him. Terrans believe in something that no other race holds so dearly, Speaks said. Which is, Dream said, mutually assured destruction, colloquially known as, you can always take them with you to the Terran children, the black man had said. Yes, Dream said carefully. You and I. He suddenly made a motion to include everyone else in the room, and everyone else could not ever intellectually or emotionally believe what has happened would ever come to pass. We had always, quite rightfully, assumed that whatever could cause the Terrans to nearly go extinct would leave the entire galaxy, not just the spur, but the entire Milky Way, to nothing but wreckage and death. Dreams nodded, thanking the puppyan who brought her an anime land food rolls. She gave one to Mr. Rings to get him to stop eyeing the puppyan. Mr. Rings took the treat and climbed under the table, wrapping his strong tentacles around the chrome underside and swinging slowly back and forth. Speaks took a long drink of his drink and looked at her. I know that this, right now, is merely a period of calm before the real attack begins. How? Dreams frowned. Speaks took another drink. We have no idea how many humans are left. We have heard estimates that 99.9985% are dead. He took another drink, which people have pointed out, uh, means that millions are still alive. Dreams nodded, nibbling on the piece of raw fish wrapped in seaweed and steamed rice, enjoying the taste of the sauce. Species have recovered from having less numbers than that. Speaks shook his head. That's not the point. Of course the human race itself as a species will survive. Tens of billions didn't believe in cyberware or suds or bioware, he said. Analysts believe that those ones survived. He shook his head. I don't. I think very few survived that had any type of genetic lineage from before the great glassing. Dreams cocked ahead. You said then that wasn't the point. Speaks accepted another drink and swallowed down nearly a third of it in one long, convulsive gulp. He set the glass down, rested his blade arms on the table, then put his hands on the table surface, spreading his three fingers and two thumbs. It is not the Terran Confederacy Terrans descent humans that everyone should be frightened of, he said. He leaned forward slightly. It's what will happen due to the great TDS extinction. Dream stared at the black mantid and wondered if he'd been working too hard. Like... She asked softly. Speaks leaned forward even further, standing up, straddling the relaxation bench. Behold! He whispered fiercely. Humanity! He grabbed the drink, slugged the rest of it down, and staggered from the lounge. Reams watched him go. She had never seen the Black Bandit, a highly skilled, trained, and experienced intelligence analyst, act in such a manner. She looked at the Molosser's back and motioned him over, gesturing for him to sit down. She waited until he had made himself comfortable. May I ask you questions? She asked carefully. The human had half a helmet that provided psychic dampening and his eyes glowed a soft amber as he nodded. Dreams noted that six of the nine LEDs were lit up red, the other three yellow. Do you agree with words spoken we fear? She asked. The mosser slack thought about it for a long moment, staring off into space. After a moment, he nodded slowly. Vengeance! Never dies, he said. Dreams was startled at unfamiliar his voice was and realized that she wasn't sure that he had ever spoken to her presence before. Before she could ask for further clarification, he resumed speaking. Mr. Words was correct in our belief that you can take them with you, he said. 
Many consider that to be a part of a vengeful makeup involved in the mantid glassing of terror. Is it? Dreams are softly. She noticed that their little corner of the lounge seemed to have gotten darker, quieter, and the vibrations and normal sensations of the starship had reduced. The Mazaslack shook his head. No, Madame Diplomat, he said. He summoned up the tables and holographic keyboard and made a few strokes of the keys. A large, tawny feline figure, huge teeth, sharp claws, an engine of carnivorous destruction. A mountain lion, Madame Diplomat, the Mazaslack said, Rendered extinct by glassing after genetic engineering restored it, and this version is before the extinction agenda attack turned it up to eleven. He tapped a few more keys and a Terran appeared, scraggly hair, short beard, wearing crude clothing, holding a spear with a chipped stone. Meet the only thing that could match it. Dreams nodded, wondering where this was leading. His village, which would be nomadic, would be behind him. There would be a handful of adult males with him as the females found stones to throw in case he got inside the perimeter. Muscleslack said, Now, you know that your hive lords would have just sacrificed as many as needed to drive it off. But your queens laid eggs by the thousands. Dreams appeared to piece of smoked fish and dipped it in sauce, motioning it for the human to continue. Our human here is a vital part of his tribe which might consist of twenty or thirty families. The humans said, He and others will attack the mountain lion, drive it off, or alternatively, and better, kill it for its hide, bone, claws, teeth, meat. But he knows, as does every other village, that this massive engine of destruction will kill one or two of them, possibly most of them, he said. He looked at dreams, and the glow in his eyes darkened with a deep red. All of them hope that it does kill one of them. He paused for effect. He can take it with him. Before you state that all species went through this, I'd like to remind you that this man right here, this human male who archaeologists determined was killed by a mountain lion while defending his village and was buried with the creature's clean skull, was only 50,000 years ago. The human waved the images away. That instinct to take our enemy with us was once in all of you. It was how you climbed to the top and stayed there. Only hundreds of thousands of years went by for you, or millions of years. Where, for us, less than a hundred thousand. Reems just nodded, thinking over what had been said so far. So she was startled when the image of the Black Fleet appeared. It made a part of her cringe in fear to see the Missouri and the Yamato depicted. You, the Mazaslack said. He brought up the fleet of one. Can, he said. Always, black borgs in endless ranks beneath the sunless skies of dead world orbiting the neutron hole. Take them with you, he said. The last image he made larger and wiped away the others. It was the little Terran girl child blowing a dandelion so that the seed streamed out. But wouldn't they be affected too, James asked. The smozzle slack stood up. Perhaps, perhaps not. Either way, he stopped and looked back. We are Terrans. We are prepared for the unthinkable by committing to the horrifying. Dreams watched him walk away. Dreams was in her cabin, in the resting pose, watching Mr. Ring swing from a branch to branch, chasing a Pacific Northwest butter squirrel, solid light construct that had a core of real meat TM for him to snack on. 
She had asked virtually every species aboard the massive Pubbian flagship if they thought the humans were gone forever. The answer had been ranged from yes but to no although, and they had all universally agreed whoever had done the deed would regret it eventually. Probably when war steel-coated fists slammed into the last of their species member's skull. Operator, she said softly. Yes, Madam Diplomat. The ship's computer and EBI said softly. Run a search on retribution with a filter for Terran military operations or theory, she said softly. I have 62 trillion search results. Please refine your search, the EBI said. Search for the retributive military strike across reference with a mutually assured destruction, she tried. Working, diplomatic authority required, the EBI said. Dreams of something more gave her authorization. 2.2 million results, Madam Diplomat, the EBI said. When was the oldest determined, she asked. Reglassing terror, the Burger Wall, specifically Jack's Wall, the EBI said. It's the concept of ensuring beyond mutually assured destruction that your opponent, indeed, the entire world itself, will be obliterated in order to deny anyone the luxury of victory. Specifically listed as From Hell's Heart Doctrine, the extinction and gender virus was believed to be a stolen bioweapon from this philosophy of military doctrine. Dream sighed. Request data for the Nosferatu initiative, she tried. No records found, the EBI said. Dreams frowned. No? Zero records found for Nosferatu Initiative, Madam Diplomat. Would you like to try another keyword search? The EBI said. No, she stretched. Summon words spoken we fear and engage diplomatic privacy mode. All recordings are to be encrypted and sealed. Executing, the EVI said. Dreams noticed it sounded a little huffy. The black man had arrived fairly quickly. Dreams noted that he looked extremely tired. He settled down on a rock near the stream and reached out to stir the water with a tip of one blade arm. I've been thinking, Dreams started. That's a first mistake, Speaks said. Just embrace the horror. Dreams frowned. Still, you know that our being forced to flee after multiple assassination attempts activated something called the Nosferatu Initiative that's apparently been following diplomats for like 5,000 years. Speaks nodded, cleaning his antenna slowly. Yeah, it's about the only slice of amusement aside from Mr. Ring's eighth an assassin. It's not in the Diplomatic Secure Information Database, Dreams said. Speaks shook his head. It wouldn't be, just in case our database was taken intact. I've talked to other diplomats that hour aboard the vessel, she said softly. We're heading back to Lanark Land Space to negotiate a peace treaty. But will the Unified Council think we're coming from a position of weakness? Speaks asked. Dreams shrugged. The Confederacy is more than humans. The Trianidad have millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of trained soldiers... And those soldiers are equipped with Terran-quality weaponry, training, tactics, and doctrine. Our new allies, the Talgan and the Libauian, just came to name two, are mobilizing for war. But will the Council see that? Speaks asked. Dreams looked up at the starry night above the branches of the glade that she was sitting in. She found the North Star and Orion, and stared at it for a long moment. That is a worry for when we arrive, she said. I fear what might have been released by the extinction of the Terrans. Which is why you brought up the Nosferatu Initiative, Speaks said. He yawned. What's wrong? Dreams tapped one of the rocks for a long moment. I fear, as the Hive Lords and Hive Queens should have, that we shall see now, with the extinction of humanity and their perceived defeat. She took a deep breath and released it. It's just a pause before humanity's wrath is unleashed, as it was during the war against our people. She looked down at the rock in front of her, where she was scraping the blade arm against it, sharpening it. 
have here the emergence of something far, far worse than anything that could be imagined. Dreams looked up. In fact, I fear it has already begun. Speaks frowned. How so? Bites managed to get a DNA sample from the humans who enabled our rescue, Dreams said. Most of the information I did not understand, but she broke it down for me, plain and simple. Broke what down? Speaks asked. Those humans had evidence of genetic engineering, not the current method. A strange method, with a very precise modification, Dreams said. However, they weren't like modern humans. How so? Speaks asked. Dreams looked up. They were pre-glassing, pre-diasporia, possibly even pre-superluminal drive terrans. You mean, real OG humans, Speaks said. How could she tell? Speaks asked. Was there some way to pin down roughly when? They simply adapt at weaponry and computer technologies. They're obviously fairly recent. Dream shook her head. All of them had antibodies in this system for something that should be impossible. Dreams leaned forward. They had antibodies due to a vaccination regimen for a virulent plague virus with a rather innocent-sounding name. One that's been extinct since before humanity created their global information network. Speaks proud. Which one? Smallpox. Despite the fact that they were still reading from the unexpected turn of events at the entry point, the Etrechner felt a cold satisfaction at what they had accomplished. Throughout the feeding systems, the bright, raging spark of feral primitivism had been extinguished. Sure, there were a few outliers, a few data points that had been not subdued, but already the Etrechner had been able to establish themselves on several of the ancient worlds beneath the cool, red sun. The ferals had been eliminated. The food had no future but enslavement and a return to the proper place. The mantid would be destroyed, as they should have been before. The Lanectalan would be regendled and returned to being consumed. Hive worlds for the greater extractor species would be established. They would domesticate the remains of the galactic stub. Then would come the domestication of the galaxy. And eventually, the universe itself. It all belonged to them, after all. What could stop them? Behold! Humanity. End of chapter.